Rome is magnificent and brutal at the same time. And on today's program, we're exploring and understanding the Eternal City. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. 2,000 years ago, the word Rome meant civilization itself. Today, Rome lives amidst the rubble of that ancient empire, and it remains a cultural powerhouse, the capital of both Italy and Catholicism. As you peel through its fascinating and jumbled layers, you'll find Rome's buildings, cats, all that laundry, crazy traffic, and two and a half million Romans endlessly entertaining. To prepare us for the Eternal City, two of Rome's best tour guides, Susanna Perrucchini and Francesca Caruso, join us. Because Rome is like an old lady, but still very charming, you have to go beyond the wrinkles. It's also a wonderful opportunity for Americans to immerse themselves in an ancient civilization that they are very connected to themselves. It's Rome on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're going to Rome. Rome is a magical city. I could spend more time in Rome, I suppose, along with maybe Paris, London, and Istanbul than any other city in Europe. And of course, the thing about Rome is it has so much history. Not only does it have a lot of history, but it's a vibrant opportunity to connect with today's Italy. Today I have joining me two Roman guides, friends of mine who have helped me with my tours and my guidebook research, and today are joining us. Susanna Perrucchini is here in our studio, and Francesca Caruso joins us by telephone from Rome. Do I say benvenuti? Benvenute. Sì. Benvenuti. <laughs> Francesca, come va? Molto bene, tu? Ciao, bella. Ciao. <laughs> I got to say ciao, bella. Sì, that's yeah, uh, perfect. Well. Ciao, bella. Because I wouldn't want to say ciao, bello. No, you wouldn't. No, I've not. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, it's great to have you both here. And both of you earn your living taking people around Rome. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, I started in 1999 taking American students to Europe, not only Italy, and I really enjoyed it. So I grew up in Rome. I was living for such a long time in Madrid, and now I'm back in Rome again. Now, when Susanna, when you take Americans around Rome... What is the most um, enjoyable thing as a guide for you to share with the tourists? The little back streets. Why? The little, because the magic is still there. Rome is a great city, can be chaotic, can be noisy. Sometimes for American people, they think it's dirty. But yeah. if they can go beyond this image, which can be the first one and maybe the last one, but you have to be able to go over. So you need to get away from the famous squares and where all You must them. see them, yeah. but then... Get away. So what is the magic of Rome when you say that's where you find the magic? <laughs> because Rome, it's, it's like, a, um, like an old lady, but still very charming. So you have to go beyond the wrinkles, you know? <laughs> go, oh, that's nice. See beyond the wrinkles. <laughs> Francesca, you respond to that. Is, is Rome an old lady who's still very charming for you, Francesca? I find her tremendously charming, and I think it's also a wonderful opportunity for Americans who come from such a young country to confront a different sense of time and to immerse themselves in an ancient civilization that uh, I think they are very connected to themselves. I mean, there's so much even in your country and your world that in a sense started in Rome. So be, to be able to connect and to feel part of such an ancient civilization, I think, can be a very exciting adventure, uh, both intellectual and emotional. It's something I really, really believe in. So, Francesca, as a tour guide who introduces Rome to American travelers, what is your greatest joy? My greatest 
greatest joy is seeing that moment when they go from being uh, completely overwhelmed to that sense of participation, when they see that they really, in a sense, get it, and I know that they are in Rome and that they're feeling it and that they feel part of it. What is getting it? Tell me, show me specifically where is a tourist and then what happens when they get it? For example, there are moments in the Roman Forum that, as you know, is a part of the greatest archaeological area in the world. The Roman Forum used to be the center of the public life of the ancient city, so the center of the political, religious, commercial life of the ancient city, which, if you go there, seems just this vast uh, area of ruins. But with just a few ideas and a few visual tools, just some ideas, if you can reconstruct it with your imagination and somehow project yourself there in the past and imagine being there, seeing it, as it was 2,000 years ago, that for me is getting it. When they're in that moment, then they know how to do it themselves, when they can project themselves into the past and make the past come alive, which for me is something in Rome is the most important thing, and something that after a while does come natural. Like for me, outside of Rome, there's a place called the Aqueduct Park, and you see these 2,000-year-old aqueducts, big brick and concrete structures with all these Roman round arches sort of galloping across the field into the city. And remember that Roman engineers built that to bring water to a city of a million people, and when barbarians wanted to uh, attack the city, just chop off one arch on that aqueduct and you've cut off the water and and you can uh, have the city in serious trouble. To be able to understand the context of those old ruins, that's the magic of classical Rome. I think so. I always like to remind all visitors that they should feel at home because everybody grows up with a sense of Rome. Everybody has come across it in their studies. Everybody has heard about it. So to feel connected and to feel the magic of the past is, I think, what Rome is all about. Don't you think, Susanna? No, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, Francesca, you do such a great job because it's very hard for us sometimes to be able to explain something. Rome is a complicated city, it's the capital of the modern state, the Republic. So it's, it's a mix. It's a melting pot. Susanna, where do you feel the, the magnificence of ancient Rome best? Well, actually, I have to tell you, my favorite uh, section of the city, there are many. It's hard to pick, but I would say Trastevere. For ancient Rome? Mm, for ancient Rome, close to the Pantheon. Close to the Pantheon. Yes, the Pantheon area. I don't know if you do agree. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Forum, it's a must. You For know? me, to be alone in the Pantheon, early in the morning or yes. at the end of the day. Yes. Early in the morning, a ball comes bouncing in and a child chases his dog. And then mm-hmm. there's old women who are doing their shopping who drop in there and sit on a bench and just marvel at it. Yes. No tourist. The Pantheon is the building, I believe, where you feel the magnificence and the splendor of Rome better yes. than any other. I, I, I do think so. Mm. And actually... Very early in the morning, very late at night. These are the two moments where you can really enjoy Rome as it probably used to be, or romantic Rome. You know, that's a very good point, isn't it, to go early or late. I've had the good fortune of being with tour groups who have been with a a Catholic high school, for instance. Their priest or their uh, teacher took them to St. Peter's early in the morning to worship. I had never experienced the church filled with worshipful people and incense and music instead of tourists with flash attachments. Yes. <laughs> that's true, that's true. And also at night, Rome at night, it's a completely different town. That's why it's nice to push people to go. It's a safe place. That's mm-hmm. something that I want to yeah. remind people. It is a safe place. We don't wear guns. We don't have any kind of problem. Of course, there are thieves outside, but you can feel completely comfortable when you are in Rome at midnight walking the narrow lanes, little squares, big squares. As a matter of fact, Campo di Fiori is a popular place any time of day for tourists. It wears a different hat every time of day, or it has a different face, I guess you would say. Yes. During the morning, Campo di Fiori is a market, so very lively. 
Local people go there and they buy their own grocery, bread, fruit. It's very live. Then it does change along the day. So uh, they clean up. Then it becomes kind of quiet. So cappuccino, uh, relaxing time. And then during the night, it's very popular among very young Roman people. It's, they, it's thriving with Roman people. Yes, it's mm. packed, especially during the summer. It looks like a fraternity party. It uh, is. Uh, like <laughs> all of the fraternities yeah. in America dumped on the same square. Yes, <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> Something that I would like to point out, and the way that Rome is lit in the evening is very special because the lights in the streets and in the squares are orange, and there are not very many of them because it was a decision that the municipality made to try to recreate for the locals and for visitors the experience of what it would have been like to walk around the city at night in the past when the streets were lit with torches and with oil lamps and not with neon glare so that you would discover things gradually as you move closer to them and you couldn't sort of anticipate the effect that they had from afar, which I think is very romantic, too. And then I think, uh, Rick, that you really hit the nail on the head when you evoke that image of the Pantheon early in the morning with the children and the balls and the dog. I mean, isn't it in the end what Rome is all about and what you said? We have something so incredible like the Pantheon, which is the masterpiece of world engineering, but with children playing around it, with dogs passing, that reminds us, that, yes, it's an ancient masterpiece, but there's life that still goes around it and in it today. It is part of the life of the Romans today. I mean, I give my girlfriends, even Suzanne, I mean, we've met at the Pantheon, and every time I say meet you at the Pantheon, I try to imagine how many people must have said that before me, and I just find it to be Roman in a nutshell right there. Wow, what a blessing to live right there. Be able to say to your friend, I'll meet, I'll meet you at the Pantheon. You That's know? a very it's typical a, spot. It really is. And the it's mellow lighting, Francesca. I've been going there for 20 years, and it never occurred to me, but you've got it. It's mellow lighting, and it's yes. almost lamp-lit or torch-lit, and yes. that adds to the ambiance. And something I just learned this last summer, they have opened up the new Altar of Peace, uh, which celebrated the establishment of the Pax Romana when Rome established its empire, I guess, and, and said now it's going to be peaceful because we control everybody. And um, <laughs> it was quite a powerful memorial and it's been closed for years and they've opened it up and in a modern building and somebody told me that's the first building built in Rome since before World War II in the center of Rome. Is that true? Well, yes, also because the person who told you was uh, the person you're talking to right You now. told me. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I hope it was true, Francesca. But when I think about it, I looked yes, around. Don't worry. I double checked. Don't worry. I was taking notes. And uh, there's, of course, the uh, train station, but that's uh, from fascist times. Yes, You've after, got... after fascist times, there was this trauma for all the disasters that uh, the Mussolini government had done downtown, tearing up roads, destroying ancient monuments. Hmm. So. It took a long time, and the Romans uh, are still debating. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Can Rome take another layer? Can uh, can it accept into itself the modern? Uh, the Romans uh, have very mixed feelings. But there's no skyscrapers in the center of Rome. Uh, no, and I think we should be thankful. I don't think they would oh, look it's a beautiful good. thing. <laughs> That's something that we can be mindful of as we travel. When we look around, it's elegant buildings from uh, a different age. Yeah, several centuries. And there's many layers of Rome. This is something Rome can be overwhelming, but if you see it in layers, I think that's kind of nice. you got, of course, classical Rome. You can do what I call the the Caesar shuffle, walking very conveniently from the Colosseum through the Forum up to the Capitol Hill and over to the Pantheon. And then you can look at Rome as a pilgrim. And I love this concept that pilgrims came to Rome from all over Europe. Martin Luther walked to Rome from Germany. When pilgrims would come, they would be navigating by obelisks and domes. And when you look at Rome, you have these clear lines of sight down boulevards, and you see the next obelisk. And they would say, from this church, go to that obelisk, look left, and you'll see that dome. And you had a whole uh, ritual of visiting different important places for the the church. 
And I think that's something that's interesting when you're walking around the streets is, in a sense, putting yourselves in the shoes of the people who came here in the past. I try to do this every time I walk into St. Peter's. I try to imagine being a pilgrim coming from a little village in Spain or France and traveling on foot for weeks and weeks and dreaming of seeing St. Peter's once in my life. And at the end of this incredible journey, I walk into the church and there's candles, there's incense, there's chanting, there's mass. And I try to imagine mm. the response without ever having seen an image of it before, without having seen documentaries, but just maybe dreaming and daydreaming about and it. Finally that. seeing it to it and falling to your knees. And one thing I've learned is, Check your Protestant baggage at the door. When I go to the, when I go to the Vatican, I'm not a Lutheran. I'm a temporary Catholic, okay? And that helps immeasurably because you're not going to you're not going to solve anything by complaining no. about all the gold in there. And, yeah, uh, that's certainly true. I'm talking with Susanna Perrucchini and Francesca Caruso. Is that right, Francesca? Si. Caruso. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're talking about Rome. This is travel with Rick Steves. Eight seven seven three 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 rick That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. When in Rome, you can do as the Romans do, thanks to our insider's guide to one of the world's great cities. Our guests, Susanna Perrucchini and Francesca Caruso, continue taking your calls as we plan a Roman holiday on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by two friends and fellow tour guides, Francesca Caruso, who's on the telephone from Rome, and Susanna Perrucchini, who is right here in our Seattle area studios. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we have some callers on the phone. Let's go right to our phones. Uh, We've got Prem on the phone in Chicago. Thanks for your call. Hi there. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, this is Prem. Great to talk to you guys. I've I've been to Rome a couple times and have seen some of the wonderful major places that one goes as a tourist in Rome. I'm going again, and I'm going to actually be going on a cruise with some friends. I'm coming a week early to spend some more time in Rome, and I would love to know kind of that second layer that you might suggest that would be wonderful to see while I'm there. Good question. Yes. Well, personally, Prim, I would suggest, as I was telling before, that Trastevere is is an amazing section of the city. Actually, the Jewish ghetto in Trastevere, so you have to cross literally one of the several bridges uh, to go to the other side, 
it's touristy, but it's not as packed as other destinations, other places. And actually, it has a, still a local flavor, which is really important. There are lots of pizzeria, local restaurants, beautiful, incredible early Christian churches. Mm. And I want to mention only one, which is Santa Maria in Trastevere. It's really in the heart of the this section of the city. Uh, this is my perception. The more you get lost, the more you dare, the better. And Trastevere, that's particularly important because it is quite overrun by tourists in the traditional center of it. Yes. But it's a large area and you can wander to places that have almost no tourism. And then you get the old Trastevere magic. Exactly. How, how do you spell that? Trastevere. It means across the Tiber River. Tras, okay, Trastevere. Trastevere. Right. And I, I love this comment that Susanna made about the uh, church there, Santa Maria in Trastevere. My understanding is, and, and maybe you can help me, when you were across the river, you could be a little more... Um, independent from the Roman power center, and you could have a church and you could worship more freely. And Santa Maria and Trastevere has an older tradition of worshiping and open. Is that true or is there anything to that? That's uh, certainly true because uh, Trastevere, as you said, means beyond the Tiber. Because, you know, as Prim, you probably realize this on your other visits, Rome was founded and Rome developed on the left bank of the Tiber where the historical center is. And so in the area of Trastevere, initially it wasn't even included uh, within Rome. And a lot of foreigners lived there and a lot of Jews who converted to Christianity. So Christianity spread there very, very rapidly. And even in the early days during the persecutions, they used to have the famous house churches, that is where wealthy uh, converts allowed mass for the neighborhood community to be celebrated in a room of their home. So when Christianity became legal, very often churches were built where these homes used to be. So it is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to immerse yourself in medieval Rome, which of all of the mm-hmm. different phases is, I think, the hardest one to find and to really get a flavor of, um, especially of medieval life and of these wonderful churches. I absolutely agree with Susanna. Santa Maria and Trastevere should not be missed. I think a lot of uh, Trastevere residents until recently, they're so feisty and independent, they bragged they would go through their whole lives and they never even needed to cross the river. Yes, exactly. And you know, it's there's still in July uh, a feast, a festival, which is the Festa de Noantri, which is the feast or the party for us, literally translated. I don't know if you do agree about the translation, Francesca. Yes, I think it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so it's our feast, our oh, party. Yeah. And uh, the city, the main street and all the narrow lanes around, they are packed with uh, stands. They sell food. They have music. It's really nice, interesting. Ah, So I yeah. think Trastevere is a, a key for people. In America, we have the wrong side of the track, what we say, you know, to go to the ah, yes, crusty of side of town. <laughs> and in Europe, in many cases, it's the wrong side of the river. You go to yes, the Ultra Arno true. in Florence and yeah. Trastevere in Rome. But you know, uh, Rick, that in the past there used to be incredible rivalries between the um, the people who lived in Trastevere, who are called the Trasteverini, and people who lived in other areas. And they used to have these fights in which they used to throw cobblestones and pieces of ancient Roman ruins at each other. <laughs> Bonk people with an ancient capital. All right. Yeah, well, you know, you have to throw something, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> Grab whatever's near. Have you been to the Borghese Gallery? No, I haven't. Well, please, please put that at the top of your list. The okay. Galleria Borghese is, for me, the most beautiful museum in Rome, outside of the Vatican, of course, which is clearly another country, right. and I know you would enjoy it. Oh, wonderful. And with the respectful attitude, you can go to the Scala Santa, right, the, the Holy Steps yes. that yes. Uh, Constantine's mother brought back from the Holy Land in the 4th century. Uh, yes, so it seems. Those were the, uh, it was a marble staircase from the Palace of Pontius Pilate 
the Christ is supposed to have ascended when he went to his trial. It was brought back to Rome, and uh, with this tradition that we've had for centuries, pilgrims would go up the uh, staircase and still do, actually, on their knees. And a tourist can do that if they're respectful. Oh, yeah. And you can climb right up that stairway on your knees. And as all these people from all over the Catholic world are saying their prayers as they go right up to the top. Exactly. Yes. What What a powerful experience. Prem, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you guys so much. That was great. You're welcome. You bet. Arlene's on the phone in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hi, Arlene. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. My question is that my family, my husband, my 14-year-old son and I will be spending three days in Rome prior to going on a cruise, and we realized that we could probably spend three weeks in Rome, but what would you suggest as a doable, must-see itinerary for three days in Rome? What are the highlights? Well, that's a good question. I think a lot of Americans have the shortest vacation in the rich world, and we have to do a great city like Rome in a couple of days. Uh, Susanna, you take groups all the time. If you had roughly three days, how would you prioritize? Well, three days. So I would say, let's say, uh, the Roman Forum and the Colosseum, uh, if you want the Palatine Hill, then roughly the, the, the Vatican City and the area around, which is very nice, actually, Prati District, and, but, of course, if you like to walk and if you like to visit more. And then the third option might be Borghese Gallery or either um, Trastevere section. I don't know if you do agree or if you have other suggestions, Francesca. Go ahead, because I think you can be more detailed on that. I absolutely agree with you. I think you should try to divide it up. If you have three days, I would devote one day to ancient Rome and definitely include uh, the Colosseum and the Forum. And you said your son is uh, 14. Yes. I think it would really be nice if you took him to a church near the Colosseum, which is called San Clemente, St. Clement, which is a church from the 1100s that beneath it has a church from the 4th century, and beneath it's still an ancient Roman house. And you can go through all the layers, and you can stand on what street level was 2,000 years ago. And I really think your son would understand the layers of Rome, and I think that would be a fantastic experience. And uh, definitely the Vatican. And, of course, make sure that you go on a nice walk. You can do it maybe in the evening, so not make it part of your major sightseeing. Maybe Trevi Fountain, Piazza Navona, the Pantheon, Mm. maybe before or after dinner. And I think at that point you should be absolutely tranquil that you've covered the highlights. I would say, if I could add, you got one day, as, as Francesca and Susanna said, for the ancient city, one day for the Vatican, which means the church, the dome, and the great museum. And anticipate lines there, because it's quite crowded. Okay. Uh, Your evenings would be spent, I think, uh, of course, you've got to do Trastevere, and that's most interesting after dark. Uh, You'd want to do the night walk through Rome, where you lace together all the famous spots, the Piazza Navona, the Spanish Steps, and the Trevi Fountain, and so on, which is just a delight. And the Romans have this wonderful tradition of closing down their main boulevard, the Via del Corso. The police just stop the traffic, and everybody's out making the scene. And this is to and me. And that's a typical evening activity, then, that they close the boulevard? Oh, yeah. And uh, let me let uh, Suzanne and Francesca comment on this, but tell us about the uh, passeggiata in Rome. Well, passeggiata in, in Rome, not, not only Rome, but in Rome specifically, is the big thing that everybody does. Passeggiata means literally stroll, walking, slowly. And it's probably the one thing that tourists miss who want to see the people that could go out very easily and do this. It's right right through the heart of town. Everybody's out strolling. Yes, exactly. Especially after 6, 7, um, in between dinner, 
before and after. People, what they do, uh, actually, we have a city center. We have several city centers in Rome. But what we usually do, we gather around a cafeteria. We have a coffee. We sit down. Sometimes we go from one place to another. And we easily and relax a little bit walking through the beauty of the city. So this is something that I really highly recommend to do to tourists. Because sometimes you take it like a marathon. (laughs) <laughs> but you're looking at people. You're looking at a hundred, yes. uh, hundreds and thousands of people. What do you look at when you go? Because uh, you see there's young people with their styles. You've got old people who have been doing this for 50 years. Uh, what's going on mm. there? Actually, the biggest fun is just to walk or either sit in a coffee where is a, I mean, in the center of a square or in a very busy place and just look at people walking by. So you can look the way they dress. You can have a, an idea of the way we uh, we dress up for the night. Tell me about the Coato. I understand there's poor kids who live, <laughs> who live in the suburbs. They don't have parks. And they go downtown on their fancy little Vespas, their motorbikes, and make the scene. Go ahead, Francesca, <laughs> about the Coato. <laughs> Yes, I mean, certainly, you have to understand that this is what life in Italy is all about, and in Rome, I I think, especially so. It's all about being outside and being with other people. This is the thing that the Italians enjoy the most. This is an outdoor culture. And sometimes I think because our cities were not designed for cars, because they're so ancient, or for people, it's just an invitation to be outside. Um, Maybe the Coato we could do without. The Coato is uh, somebody who comes from the suburbs who normally has atrocious uh, taste in dress, for example, and in haircuts, which can be absolutely atrocious. And, uh, well, tell me, <laughs> well, how would they dress, Francesca? <laughs> yeah. What is atrocious? We would like to avoid dressing like that. <laughs> <laughs> tell me their taste in dress. I'm just really curious. Paint me a picture, Francesca. Well, first of all, their haircuts are atrocious because they tend to be, <clears throat> um, well, um, let's say with maybe a bucket full of gel on their heads, and um, it's just cut in very strange shapes. And also <laughs> their pants are too tight and way too low. And, uh, yes, like a mullet, uh, in a sense, which I know that even in the States is not considered the epitome of good taste in, uh, in haircuts. But, uh, and also, yes, their pants tend to be too tight and way too low, and even their t-shirts are tremendously tight. And sometimes they don't even have the physique that goes with them, so you can imagine. But, uh, yeah, so they come here and they just go back and forth, back and forth, uh, trying to meet the girls. And the girls come out, and the girls are attracted by these guys with a bucket of jelly on their head? Well, it depends um, on your taste. <laughs> yes. Not exactly, but some of them. <laughs> yes, maybe. So what's the, what's, the, what's the female equivalent of a coata? What's the name? Una coata. A coata. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And how does a coata dress? Well, I would say um, it depends. There are many variations. I don't know if you do agree with me, Francesca. The haircut is fundamental, so it can be atrocious in different ways. Very long or very curly, you know, completely wild. So, yes, and also a lot of makeup that sometimes is referred to as a pizza quattro stagioni, four seasons pizza, the one that has everything on it. <laughs> so, here's, okay, here's a here's a cuisine tip if you want everything on your pizza, get a quattro stagioni. Here's a fashion yeah, tip if you want everything yeah, on your four face, four season pizza. So, yes. go quattro so stagioni. Makeup is also known as pizza quattro stagioni. She looks like a pizza quattro stagioni would indicate that. Wow. Yes. So if you were to go conservative and tasteful, we should be fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it's nice to look at them. But tell me one more element of this passeggiata, because it's very elegant in Sorrento or Verona. Mm -hmm. 
you go to Rome and it's a little bit more crude and hungry and sexual, and they call it like they're rubbing against each other, right? Yes, and it's also because Rome is a, is a much larger city, so also I would say socially far more varied. So there are areas that are considered a little bit chicer, areas that are considered a little bit more popular, so it really does depend on that. But that makes it even more interesting because I think, don't you think, um, Arlene, that it's also interesting to see how the Italians interact among each other, no? to see if there are any differences with the way that, uh, that in America you interact socially when you're in a public space. I, mean, I know that's something, that's something that fascinates me when I travel. Uh, it's endlessly mm-hmm. fascinating for me on the Via del Corso to see many generations out. And you, yes. see the, you see the sort of elegant older people looking at the wild younger people, but they're all out together. It's yes. a beautiful thing. People with their strollers, you got the coato with their tight shirts and their jelly on their hair, and, uh, <laughs> and it's just a wonderful carnival of people. It's a river of Italian life, and it's something not to be missed. Arlene, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Fritz emailed us from Philadelphia, and Fritz asks, uh, most cities seem to have an epicenter, a place that defines the city. What is the center of Rome? Hmm. Good question. Good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suzanne, I think you said it before. Rome has many centers. Yes. But let's try to narrow it down a bit. What do you say? I would say that definitely one of the many uh, especially for tourists, but also for us, is the Pantheon area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Via del Corso, Pantheon, Travis Fountain, it's actually kind of a big triangle. In fact, that's where I personally yes. prefer to sleep. Yes. I, I pay extra to sleep in hotels right there in the Pantheon area. I just, yeah, I just it's love beautiful. It. Yeah. I think if you look at a map and you look where the River Tiber makes a curve, I would say that the curve in the Tiber is the center. And you can see it on the map because there are many, many more streets that don't seem to have a logical layout. That's, for me, the beating heart of Rome is there. All right. Uh, we've got Steve on the line from Grays Lake, Illinois. Steve, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Um, yeah, I had a question. I was in Rome about a year ago, and we, we did see all the highlights. We saw the major ruins. And wanting to go back again soon, we want to kind of get into maybe some ruins that are off the beaten path. Uh, any suggestions there? So we're talking ancient ruins off the beaten path. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Susanna, Francesca, what, what ruins do tourists often miss that they should be sure to check? Ostia Antica. Maybe yes. it's the first one that I would mention. Ostia Antica is still part of Rome, but it's about um, 15 miles south very close by the the beach, one of the several beaches we have close by Rome, and uh, it gives you the perfect example of uh, our city evolved along the centuries, a Roman city. And we should mention, Ostia was the seaport of Rome. Exactly. Uh, 2,000 years ago, I believe it had a population of 60,000 people or yeah, something like that. it was like very this. big yeah, and very important. And then uh, mosquitoes or something depopulated the place from malaria. It was covered up and forgotten over the centuries. Yeah, the coastline receded uh, three kilometers, and the course of the river changed with floods, so it became isolated, and because, of course, it was flooded, yes, absolutely a problem with malaria, which was absolutely huge in the past in Rome. I agree, Ostiantica, definitely, uh, Steve, I think you should... uh you should consider also because it's very, very easy to get to. There's a train that will get you there with one euro in half an hour or so. Now, how would you compare Ostia with Pompeii? Because everybody is just hell-bent on seeing Pompeii, but it's three and a half hours south by train, south of Naples, whereas you could arguably say Ostia gives you the same sort of experience as a half-an-hour side trip from downtown Rome. I think that 
the only big difference that I can think of is that in Pompeii you still have lots of the uh, painting on the wall, so a lot of the art is still there. But you can integrate that, I believe, if when you're in Rome, you go to the National Museum by the uh, train station, the mm. Palazzo Massimo, that on the uh, top floor has some of the most beautiful frescoes that have survived from Roman antiquity. So a visit to Ostiantica integrated with the frescoes at the National Museum, I think, would be perfect. And we should remind people that that National Museum is exquisite. And I guess what's really exquisite is the top floor where you have the rare frescoes of domestic quarters. You used to have to make an appointment and wait in line to do that, but now I believe you just go up there anytime you want. Yes, yes, because uh, it's uh, one of the wonderful things about that museum is that it's never crowded, so you practically have the place to yourself. All right. Steve, I think it's unanimous. Uh, you need to go to Ostia Antica. That's the most, <laughs> I would say it's the most underrated site. You could make the case yes. it's the most underrated site in Europe. Yes. Austria uh, is sounds incredible. great, right on the coast, too. Yeah. Yes, yes exactly. I would love it. And then, you know, see, if you get back on the same train that takes you out there, you can go to the coast and see the Mediterranean. So you can make it a really nice day of it. You can maybe have lunch at the beach, if you like. But isn't, isn't it a pretty miserable beach there? No, the beaches are okay. Is the the city itself that was no? The city is not too too nice because it was designed according to the fascist, um, you know. Ah, so it's a fascist beach. Uh, <laughs> not anymore, thanks God. <laughs> but we, the beach is nice. <laughs> we've got lots more to talk about here. We're, in fact, I want to talk about fascism and how that affects our travel today in Rome. I'm joined by Susanna Perrucchini and Francesca Caruso. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today it's Rome. Eight seven seven three 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 rick is how you reach us at Travel with Rick Steves. Or add your comments to the radio feedback forum in our website, ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, the theme is Rome. I'm joined by Francesca Caruso, coming to us by telephone from Rome, and Susanna Perrucchini, who's a Roman guide who's visiting us in our Seattle area studios. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. You know, Rome is a big city, and a lot of people um, in big cities anywhere have to be savvy. And there's some threats for us. Not You're not going to get knifed or mugged in Rome, but you good chance you're going to get pickpocketed or fall into some scam. What is your advice, Susanna, for travelers who might be a little naive in a big city? First of all, don't be naive <laughs> and uh, try to think that you are in a big city. So as a tourist, we all are easy targets. What's the most common problem a tourist would have? Um, they can be... You know, on, especially in the subway and uh, in some areas, such as Vatican and the Colosseum, they can be robbed by gypsies, by thieves. So it's very common. That is very common. It's not really um, dangerous because they are so fast, actually, that yeah. you don't even realize. That, it's almost that, enjoyable. Yes, <laughs> almost. <laughs> it's form. So the, the most important suggestion is to wear a money belt uh-huh. uh, to break a bill into small ones, yeah. don't bring with you 100 euros and then you want to pay a Coke, you know? You give a taxi driver a 50-euro note. I've, this has happened to me. He drops it and he picks it up and it's a five. Mm. 
you know, yeah. and there's these kind of scabs, yes. and they're very good. He's got a five buried down there, and anybody gives him a 50. Uh, and those places you mentioned that are the high-target places, that's where the tourists go. The exactly, Vatican, bus, exactly. Bus 64, which is filled with tourists going to the Vatican yes. and the Colosseum. Yeah. Francesca, what do you think are the, the major pitfalls for naive tourists? Well, I think uh, absolutely the pickpocket. So I always recommend just being aware of your surroundings. I mean, certainly one is looking at the sites, one tends to get distracted, but just sort of to be aware of who's around you. And also, I think you just you just mentioned that it's a taxi. Never get on a taxi that doesn't have a meter on it. If it doesn't have a meter, you get off and keep your eye on the meter, especially. And inside the official taxis, there is always a chart with the prices. For example, the city has decided that the taxi ride from the airport to the city has to cost 40 euro all included. So if when you get to the hotel they charge you 60, no, you give them 40 anyway. And if you have trouble, you just call somebody from the hotel. I think that's really very important because finally they've established the fixed rate. And then also in restaurants, double check your bill. These are the things I... Uh, yeah, because if you go to a touristy restaurant, you know, there's, there's just a constant temptation of ripping off the dumb tourist, putting an extra zero on the bill, and a lot of tourists don't know it. And that just uh, rewards the uh, unscrupulous restaurateur to charge more. Yes. So understand what you're ordering. Don't be afraid to ask what seems like a stupid question about the price. Not at all. Right. Yes, and then, of course, just, just you know, have a car to speak up. I mean, a, a taxi driver has no right to charge you more, so, you you know, something you should be intimidated. Don't worry about the language barrier. I mean, if one is right, one is right. That's right. Now, um, when we go to Rome, we have a lot of architectural heritage from Mussolini, I believe. Mussolini yeah. was a big builder. I, I don't know why, but fascist rulers seem to like architecture. Hitler was a frustrated <laughs> architect. Mussolini had a chance to actually leave his, his mark more than Hitler did. You got an entire suburb designed by Mussolini's people. Yes. EUR. EUR, Esposizione Universale Roma. Mussolini had this great idea that he was like uh, the Caesar of the new era. I don't know if I'm, I said it right, Francesca. See, so so exactly he, want, he wanted to have something, a, a new road linking the south part of the city, a new part of the city called Eur, uh, linking to the city center, which was the Colosseum. And actually, he was the one to destroy lots of buildings in between to build Fort Imperiali, which is this imperial street linking today to Piazza Venezia. So from Piazza Venezia, you could say that's the center of Rome in a lot of, from a traffic point of view. Yes. Uh, this boulevard built by Mussolini straight to the Colosseum. It's an atrocity because it covers up a, a lot of precious antiquities. Yes. Yes, it covers them and it destroys them. I mean, there was an incredible oh. amount of ruins that was lost. Also because, you know, he had a very artificial, wrong idea of what ancient Rome uh, was supposed to look like. So what he dis did is he destroyed a lot of monuments that had survived that were sort of smaller. He destroyed all the smaller monuments in between the great big ones, say, like the Colosseum and oh. the Arch of Constantine. He wanted them to stand out in this abstract, empty space that never existed. Rome, ancient Rome was very cluttered. But you know, you're, you're right, Rick, what you were saying about the fact that Mussolini built a lot, because isn't it true that the ancient Roman emperors built to show power, to make their power something tangible, something everybody could feel every day to be reminded, no? And as Rome fell, they had an inclination to build even grander to show off power they no longer had, I think. Well, without a doubt. Without Is that true? Doubt. Does that make so, sense? Give me an example of that, Francesca. Well, for example, think of one of the last things that were built, the Basilica of Constantine and Maxentius. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's immense, but really the fall is at that point around the corner. The capital is being moved. Rome is becoming a backwater, but Rome is Rome. So you can and psychoanalyze so, the ruins and see where they are in the rise and fall of Rome by how much megalomania you see, maybe. Well, I would 
I would say that that's just an interesting point. There's so many things you can see. You know, even in their art, it's interesting to see how as time goes by, they represent their defeated enemies uh, with less and less respect. In earlier times, they showed them almost as equals, no? Uh, fighting in front of each other on the same plane. In later art, you find them with subhuman features squashed by the Romans at the bottom of their art. It's really, you can really see the evolution of that. You see the vanquished barbarians like little tiny monkeys hugging the lower part of their leg. Yes, absolutely. So you see, even in that, I mean, a fall in many different ways, even a fall in a sense of honor in war that they initially, at least for a while, had. Now, Mussolini did have this megalomaniac kind of touch when you think about obliterating the small things and making glorious the big things. He even had that sensitivity, I think, for the Vatican. He blasted through the medieval town, so you have a nice procession up to St. Peter's Square, right? Via della conciliazione. That was thanks to Mussolini. Yes. We got, we got to give the fascist dictator his uh, thanks where due. If you want to enjoy Michelangelo's <laughs> dome, you yeah. wouldn't see it in the old days. Well, let's say that it, that was thanks to the Patti Laterani. Finally, the Vatican State recognized in 1929, if I don't, I'm not wrong, Francesca, You're that, right. that Italy mm-hmm. was an, a new United State. Not before, but Italy was ah. unified in 1871, yeah. which was... <laughs> A little bit before, and it took such a long time. And he was the man, Mussolini, to sign for the Patti Laterani. And uh, the Vatican City finally accepted, after this um, Patti Laterani, that uh, Italy was a new state, was a state. So before that, the Pope was at odds with the state of Italy. Oh, yes, and not only that, it was a terrible time for the Italians who had waited so long to be part of the unified nation and who felt this conflict between the loyalty that they wanted to have to the new uh, nation and the loyalty as Catholics. Difficult to be a Catholic and an Italian. There's a conflict there there (laughs) at the same time. Still today. Interesting. Heather's on the line from Rockland, Massachusetts. Hi, Heather. Hello. Hello. Hi, Rick. Hi, ladies. How are you? (laughs) I have an art question about Rome. My mother-in-law is an artist and has studied art her whole life, and she's about to take her very first trip to Europe, and she's going to Rome, and she's very excited. When she goes there, are there any art destinations that aren't usually visited or places that are maybe a little bit more off the beaten track that she might want to see while she's there? Francesca, what's your favorite offbeat, often neglected art treasure in Rome? Well, um, I think that uh, make sure she hasn't been to the Borghese. I insist with the Borghese Gallery because it is a treasure chest of masterpieces, and especially if she is an artist, Heather, I think she needs to see that because uh, some of the art there is visually extremely exciting and might even be really inspiring for her. So we should clarify there that that's the Borghese Gallery, and you need to get a a reservation to go there, so you must make a reservation in advance, and it is the treasure chest of, I think, the most beautiful Bernini statues where you've got the best Baroque statuary and upstairs a wonderful painting gallery, and I think it comes with a very nice audio guide. Yes, it really does. So that's a key thing, and I agree. That's a must-see for any art lover in Rome, but that's pretty famous. What's something that's not famous? Um, I would say, if you like churches, uh, Heather, there are many in Rome, so really, you have to pick, you have to choose. There's a little one, actually not too little, but in uh, that section of the city that we were describing, over the river, Trastevere, and it's Santa Cecilia. Santa Cecilia is a fascinating church Mm. because... uh, it seems kind of new, according to the Roman, uh, you know, idea of new. But once you go inside, you pay an extra three euros, probably a little bit more than three euros to get to the crypt. And the crypt is the fantastic place where you can see actually the ruins of some insula, patrician houses, 
that were built on the ground. So now the church is on top of these ruins. In other words, over 2,000 years, the street level exactly. has rised mm-hmm. because people wow. don't throw all their garbage away. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice way to say it. Yes. Okay, so you can go down below the church and see yes. the street plan yeah. when it was a private home that opened itself up for worship by Christians when that was illegal. Yes, exactly. There's one villa, the Farnesini, or what is it? In La, Farnesina. Farnesina. La Farnesina. Yes. Farnesina, and it has a Raphael masterpiece, doesn't it? Yes, Yes, it really does. It really The Farnesina is important. Do you know, Heather, I was thinking, if your um, mother has some favorite artist, for example, say like Caravaggio, what she should do is look up where his major works are in the churches, and uh, maybe you could design a walk together to go to the churches where his works are, and that would be definitely off the beaten track, and it would be something very personal. And then you're so seeing the art in situ. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that great. Thank you. Oh, Good luck, welcome. Heather. Thanks for you're your welcome. call. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Rod is on the phone from Sonora, California. Hi, Rod. Yeah. Hey, Rick. Hi, ladies. Hello. I'm loving this show. It's wonderful. I've been to Rome several times, and I absolutely love it. And I've accidentally seen some incredible churches, and I'm going back there this summer and taking my son and my nephew and their art lovers, and, and we want to see some other churches. So I was hoping, I've, I've been listening to San Clemente, you mentioned. I've never seen that one. Yes, and this please see that. What, what do you say, Cacilia? Cecilia. Cecilia, yes. Saint Cecilia. You can think of Cecilia. That was, <laughs> was written <laughs> I'm writing these down. So, um, just a short list. You could give me a, a few more that I that I haven't seen that I that would enjoy seeing. All right, really quickly, uh, Susanna, another church that would be obscure that many people would miss. Well, I have to tell you, even though it's a huge, big church uh, close to the Holy Steps that we were mentioning before, San Giovanni Laterano. You know, that is you the, must off, see it. the first Vatican, really. Exactly, it exactly. It's the first official church, and it's incredible, and, and very, very few people go there. Yeah, ex- it's a shame. But... St. John in Lateran. Yeah, St. John in Lateran. Okay, I would vote St. Paul outside the walls. Another one, yes. That's a very nice. And Francesca? I vote St. Ignatius and Santa Maria in Araceli on the Capitoline Hill. Ah, that's the one on the top of the Medieval, long, yes. the, the brutal staircase that people see. Yes, the brutal staircase. But it's <laughs> worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. If you're interested in the way the, the Catholics just brutalized the Protestants, go to the <laughs> Jesu. Ah, Chiesa del Gesù. Isn't it the home church of the Jesuit order? Right. Yep. <laughs> Yes, and on the facade there is a statue of St. Ignatius who's squashing a demon, and alas, the demon's uh, head is supposed to be uh, Martin Luther. Bless his, <laughs> bless his little Protestant heart. You go in there and it's just dripping with, with uh, Catholic propaganda against those evil Protestants. Yes. The Jesu, wow. G-E-S-U. And that's a five-minute walk from the Pantheon. Roughly, within, within a dozen or so, how many churches are there in Rome? I think in the, in the historical center, around 350. For wow. every bank in Milan, there's a church in Rome. There's so many churches that people miss, and, and uh, they're just filled with history and art. It's a wonderful experience. Great. Thanks, Rod. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. William's on the phone from Miami in Florida. Hi, William. About a year ago, I went to Rome in the middle of March, you know, to take you know, advantage of the off-peak flights and, you know, and avoid the summer crowds. The only problem was that it rained every day. Mm. And, like, the major attractions were still pretty crowded. I had to wait, like, over half an hour for the Vatican Museum on a Friday. Mm. And, you know, at the Coliseum, I had to join a tour in order to avoid the lions. My question is, what is the best time of year to visit Rome when the weather is decent, yet the lions are not too long? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, especially because of the climate changes. <laughs> You're right, March can be a little bit iffy. Um, Susanna, what do you say? I mean, for me, the most important thing is that you avoid Easter, because that's when really the uh, season starts, officially yeah. it starts with Easter. So it's important I'm, to come I'm before. I made sure of that. You don't want to be there during the death of a pope, either. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Avoid that. <laughs> but all year long, you'll find yourself waiting in line to get into the Sistine Chapel, won't you? Yes. Is, is there a month where there's no lines to the Sistine Chapel? Uh, January and February. Jan- yes. So, January yeah, and after, February. After the Christmas holidays, there's this moment when there's nobody here. Wow. So it might get cold. It might rain, but probably not as much as it would around uh, March, I'm I... thinking. How long are the lines in summer? Uh, it can be at the Vatican Museums. It can be two hours and a half. Yes. Good God! Now I was just there at St. Peter's Basilica, though, and in the middle of the day, people were waiting well over an hour to get into the church. I came back at six o'clock. Walk right in. The church is almost empty. It's such a big difference. If you're going just to visit St. Peter's, consider that they allow tours in from ten to half past four. So either before ten or after half past four, you'll find no lines. Well, that's interesting. From 10 till half past 4, they let tours, so avoid the tour groups. Well, William? yes, because that's the slot of time that they allow. Oh, and that's the most obnoxious slice of the traveling public. And William, if I can give you another tip, uh, talking yes, about the line at the Vatican, try to be there uh, exactly between 1 and one thirty, because people at a certain point, they got tired and they go to have lunch. So if you can just be there, probably you are lucky enough not to be online for too long, so it's yeah. I went about eleven o'clock in the morning. I, I still no. still had a pretty long wait. <laughs> yeah. It's also not a good timing for the gentleman that called before. Yeah, that uh, church by Tremini Station that has uh, the Ecstasy of Saint Teresa. Yeah, ah, you yes. see that one. Mm-hmm. Santa Maria um, della Vittoria. You're absolutely right. That's Where Benini's Ecstasy of Saint Teresa is. You're right. It's a good example of a church that's so nondescript, and you walk in and you see one of the great masterpieces mm-hmm. in art history. A beautiful yeah. statue. Oh, yeah, by awesome. I agree with William. Totally yes. awesome. All right, William, thanks well, thank for the call. Thank you very much. You bet. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francesca Caruso by telephone from Rome and Susanna Perrucchini, who's right here in our studios. Rome, it's a place that, judging from the calls we've had and so on, there's just so much magic to it. And it's a city that you can go back to for the rest of your life. They call it the Eternal City. And I think in part that's because I can <laughs> go there forever and be constantly wowed. We talk about tourist crowds, but the city is so big that in a way, tourists just bounce off the windshield and it keeps on going. With or without the tourism, the culture is strong. Susanna and Francesca, if we could close with you just explaining to me how you would best appreciate and restoke your passion for your hometown. Where would you go and how do you feel the soul of Rome? Uh, Susanna? Well, I have to tell you, I think that we are very spoiled if you grow up in Rome, as I did, as Francesca, because we kind of get used of everything. The Colosseum I was passing by, I I grew up in San Giovanni Laterano, so that was my section of the city. So I saw that church 1,000 times. But then when you start to talk to people, and for them it's uh, such a big joy to come to Europe, and it's uh, a highlight to be able to be and see the Colosseum, you realize and you put things into a different perspective. So today, even though I, I lived so far away from Rome for such a long time, every time that I go back, even though I don't live there anymore because my family moved to another place, I really feel home. And this is because Rome is, uh, as I told you, old lady with wrinkles, but still fascinating. I'm always happy to talk to her. I'm always happy to visit. I'm always happy to have a coffee together. So that's my uh, my vision of Rome. 
I love that image. And Francesca, you're Rome. I'll tell you something a little bit new that I've been able to do that I think sort of renewed my, my passion for it. I mean, after all, I make a living with the beauty of the city, so it is my life in the end. They inaugurated this um, this elevator at the back of the Victor Emmanuel Monument that really nobody knows about. And you go with this glass and steel elevator to the very, very top of the Victor Emmanuel Monument, and you can, by just turning around on yourself, you can take in all of Rome 360 degrees from St. Peter's to the Colosseum to St. John Lateran. And I just realizing how much is there and how much from every single period, and to be able to just see it all at once. I was so moved by it. There was something about the light. I think that the light in Rome is so important. The city changes according to the season, the time of day, and just to be there at sunset and to see it, all of that pass behind me and feeling part of it, that for me is the magic of Rome, and I think it always will be. And for a visitor to be sensitive enough and poetic enough and open enough to avail yourself to the magic of that wrinkled old lady that we can all love. (laughs) (laughs) Susanna and Francesca, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this hour. Uh, This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been enjoying the Eternal City, Rome. Okay. Okay. Va bene. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves, Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find the guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.